Welcome to Grantmaker Coffee Talks, a podcast for grantmakers to listen and learn from their peers. In this episode, we're discussing the importance and the variety of methods for performing nonprofit due diligence. Please note that this conversation took place before the COVID-19 pandemic, so there are definitely some things that have changed since then, but hopefully there are still a few valuable nuggets of information. All right, let's join the conversation. The first voice we are going to hear is our webinar moderator, E.C. Pollock-Burns, followed by Danielle Shalou from the Leon Lowenstein Foundation. All right, so the first one here is, what are your foundation's due diligence practices? And some of the things you can kind of think about is not only what you do, but are there any exceptions maybe to um, what you sort of expect from applicants? Or, um, and what are those exceptions? And, and do you do anything else? Um, I'd love to know how you document this information. Uh, and I'd also like to know just if you do uh, collect this information, what do you think that it tells you? Um, so just start kind of thinking about those things and uh, we'll see if we have any, any hands. I'm Danielle Shalhoub, I'm from the Leon Lowenstein Foundation. Um, and so our due diligence process is sort of non-existent. Um, we do, you know, do verify that, your that our grantees are 501c3 organizations. Um, and we do ask for budget, you know, annual budgets and audited um, and annual reports and things like that. But none of that don't actually, don't really use any of that supplemental information. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting, you know, it's like, well, well, we've checked that you're a nonprofit that's good, but we're starting sort of transitioning to the more um, to more strategic grant making, and so learning all the different components of that is something that we're really interested in. Awesome, great, thanks for sharing. Um, I think she mentioned, uh, Danielle mentioned a couple of uh, documents that she collects. Um, if anybody has any experience with sort of taking a look at those documents, and um, you know, what do you learn from it? Uh, we encourage you to share. Hi, my name is Daniel. I um, am from Intentional Philanthropy, and um, I think you alluded to this a little bit in the um, beginning part of your presentation, just about um, the IRS law and everything. Um, but something that our uh, organization has recently um, been doing to kind of nuance that requirement is uh, when it comes to fiscal sponsors. And that is something that wasn't super obvious to, to some of us that um, when you do the IRS um, check for the non 501c3 status, um, and which is something that we always do and we PDF the results for that and everything and keep a record of it. Um, but then going the extra step to make sure um, that the address and the names always correspond to who you're actually writing a check to and making sure that that, um, that if it is a fiscal sponsor that you are um, addressing the check to them with an appropriate memo line for the program that you want to support um, or else uh, you are technically writing a check to um, a non-exempt organization and then you have to go through the whole expenditure responsibility extra step. So just to be really aware of who you're writing the check to. That was um, a lesson that our uh, company recently learned. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's great. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think honestly, fiscal sponsor and fiscal sponsor workflows could probably be a coffee talk of its own because it's just a lot going on there. So thank you again so much for sharing. My name's Karen Sutton and I'm with the Schoen Foundation and um, our executive director, Jody Bailey, I think is on the line also. We are actually in the middle of our grant cycle. So in response to the first question, um, we do do a thorough analysis of the audited financial statements and the 990s. And a few of the things that we look for is we look for the, the percentage of funds that are going to program services versus administrative versus fundraising. Then we also do a deep dive into the audit, audit financials to determine if there's any um, major notes outstanding that are a cause for a growing concern. Um, we also look at the percentage of cash and investments that they have available to meet their next year's operating expenses. And we express that in terms of months of operating expenses available. Um, as a board, we've determined that we want our funds to be used sooner than later. So unless we're contributing to an endowment fund, we like to have that number be three years or less. Um, one thing that we've encountered recently is we'll find on a lot of um, financial statements, there um, are board designated endowment funds. This is a topic of discussion at our meeting last year. And basically that's where the boards are saying, okay, we're in a surplus situation. We're gonna set this money aside. The donor hasn't set the money aside, but we're gonna set it aside. So essentially it is available for operating expenses. The board is, is doing a um, responsible thing um, to set some rainy, um, weather aside, but we also note that for the trustees and how many months of expenses that covers. So we know completely what we're giving to. Um, and one of the last items that we do is we look through the 990s at the um, executive salaries. And we use GuideStar's comp report um, for the size of the um, organization that we're looking for to determine if the salaries are in range. Um, and if we're not, and if they're not, if they're, they're higher than what would be normal for a nonprofit of that size, um, then that kind of raises a red flag for us. Wow, that's great. That's a great answer. Thank you so much for sharing. How about anybody else? What else do people do? My name is Jennifer Meckley. I'm from the Oklahoma City Community Foundation. And I think we're probably in a, a little bit of a different uh, position than a lot of people in that we grant, we have about 360 designated agency funds. So those are permanent endowment funds and we grant out to those. So we don't have a whole lot of discretionary room to decide whether or not we grant to them. We do grant to them 5% each year. And we're basically just trying to dot our I's and cross our T's. But one thing that we've come up against with exceptions recently is as I've gotten into this role and familiarized myself with those 360 organizations, I've found some that for whatever reason have been incorporated as a 501c4 or have reverted to a private foundation status. And initially that was a huge problem for us because we didn't think that we could 
grant to those organizations. Uh, but we've developed a process here where we can require them to report back to us. So, so basically doing expenditure responsibility. And I was curious to know if anyone else had faced that and if you have a process for getting that information from the nonprofit, uh, what they're spending those things on. Great question. Yep. Especially with those exceptions, they can t definitely be tricky. So if anybody else has a similar experience, please feel free to raise your hand. Hi, I'm with the Fremont Area Community Foundation in Michigan, um, and we do most of the things that have been talked about, but we do an additional Michigan requirement where they need to be registered with the License and Regulatory Affairs Bureau um, to make sure that all of our nonprofits that are incorporated in the state have registered, and if they are not registered, then we do not grant to them. Great. Yeah, uh, we did something similar at my old foundation uh, in Pennsylvania as well with the B Bureau of Charitable Organizations. So sort of that extra level of um, not just a federal status, but looking at the state level as well. So yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing. Hi, I'm Nikki Grist um, with the Cities for Financial Empowerment Fund. Um, we primarily grant to cities, but when we do grant to nonprofits, our um, our main concern is whether they are um, big enough to handle our grants successfully um, because often we're granting to um, uh, new projects and startup projects. Um, so a lot of our due diligence is um, looking at c comparing the size of our grant with the size of their operating budget and um, their previous experience. Um, so just um, in addition to things that have already been mentioned. Um, so we, we look at um, some ratios of, um, uh, for, for their organization. And we also look at um, uh, scandals and public relation problems um, because a, a lot of what we do is connected to municipal governments. Uh, and we want the nonprofits that, um, that we're working with or they're working with um, to obviously not uh, end up in the news in any kind of bad way. So, um, so we Google for um, just to see, to see what the nonprofits looked like in the news, um, and then we also check the um, audit notes to see um, things like litigation. So, those are just a few things in addition to um, what's already been mentioned. Awesome! Thank you so much for sharing. Any other hands, Dip? We probably have a t enough time for maybe one or two more questions on this topic before we move on. This is Jenny Geisheimer. I'm with the Greater Cincinnati Foundation. And um, I wanted to mention, I know a couple of people had talked about expenditure, expenditure responsibilities. And um, as many of you probably know, there's type one, type two, type three organizations under the 501c3. And if it's a type three foundation, you need to do the extra um, work on that for the supporting org there's a form that we have nonprofits fill out and get back to us indicating that what type they are and fill out the forms. Um, also, we do the um, review of audit. We ask for an audit if they have them, if not the 990. And one of our former program officers had always said the most important thing to especially look at on an audit, which was just mentioned on the last person, that looking at the management letter and notes is like really important because that can really raise if there's anything that stands out from organization. But we assess the um, organization as well, the program officers, um, staff, board, 
um, if they have a strategic plan and what's in place on that and heavily look at the financial information and the program itself. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Hi, this is Lori Perkins. I'm with Osherman Family Foundation, and um, I'm glad this topic has been brought up because it was the question I wanted to ask today um, regarding the state requirements. And we've never required as part of our due diligence a check um, to make sure that our nonprofits are in compliance with the Maryland Solicitation Act. And I don't know if that's something that is just a nice to do or whether it's something that we actually should be doing, but it was never uh, started here at our foundation. So if anyone happens to know the answer to that question, I'd love to know. Okay, great. Um, we are gonna go ahead and move on to the next question, but keep in mind all these questions um, and topics really overlap in some level. So um, we'll, go, we'll keep going on here just to make sure we um, get through everything. Um, so the second one really actually you guys have talked a lot about some really innovative and some um, some really interesting revealing methods uh, for researching nonprofits so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that and um, so we have a couple sub questions here for you um, what's the best way to collect this information we've I know we've talked a lot about supporting documents um, but I'm curious to know um, you know some foundations choose to do interviews um, where they actually interview their grantees. Uh, they also look at past grant history. So what are other things that you could utilize other than just supporting documents as well? Um, and then I also just have a question here. What would you like to do? Um, if, is there anything that you've heard somebody uh, do? Uh, and if you had, you know, a magic wand and you had bandwidth, time, resources, staff, all that good stuff, um, what would sort of be on that wish list of things you would love to, to sort of use as a screen uh, for your due diligence practices? Again, um, what we do is we annually ask our um, grantees to fill out an agency profile form. And in that form, we ask all those questions of your staff number, um, your annual budget, um, those types of questions, and upload those state forms in um, audited financials. And we ask it for them from them once per year. And we are trying this grant round for our first time to make inline questions in our founded application that staff answers, yes, they fill out an age profile, yes, I've reviewed their 990, yes, I've reviewed their audited financials. Um, and we're using that because we had a risk assessment done and they said that it would be a better process to have a checklist showing that staff did each one of these things for each grant. So, this is our first try it. We're not positive how well it's going to work. And this way it will stay with each application and we can print it off at any time if, if it's needed for review. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. That's a great, uh, great example. Thank you. Any others who want to share on this? What we would like to do if we had the bandwidth is accept applications from other funders and um, have someone, a staff person, that could take that information and enter it into the proper field so that we could still report on it. Ooh, good one. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing. That's not really a, um, a research method, but I think um, sharing that information would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Roth Brepp. I'm from the York County Community Foundation. Um, I just want to say that we typically meet with all grantees. Um, we invite them to schedule meetings with us before they apply. 
Um, this is so we can get a, a more background information on their program as well as their organization if we have any questions. Um, coming down to the, the bandwidth question, if we had the time, it would be really great to meet with all grantees. Um, because we do have people who slip through the cracks who apply and sometimes their grants aren't great <laughs> to say, but um, when they meet with us, we have the time to really narrow down and focus and help them out so that they could uh, create better ways and create better grants. Um, but this is also a way to just get additional information out of them. Awesome. Thanks, Ross. I was hired here at the Traveler Foundation in Boston. We're pretty, pretty uh, small staff, um, and I was actually hired originally um, for our to get us on social media, kind of bring us up into the 21st century, I guess you could say. Um, you know, having a millennial on staff helps. <laughs> so, in any case, I would also really, really, um, you know, can uh, I would say encourage um, if you guys, if you guys at other foundations um, and organizations have the bandwidth to ha to make um, Twitter accounts as well as Facebook and LinkedIn accounts. Um, I find it incredibly helpful on Twitter because Twitter not only gives you snapshots, you know, throughout the day and the week of not only how much people are engaging with your own website or your, I'm sorry, your own Twitter profile um, and seeing, you know, what are you up to and you know what i do on our twitter our, our twitter account is really actually boost the presence and the um the visibility of our grantees from their twitter accounts but it also uh, to the point that uh the previous attendant made um was it's really fun to follow them um and really kind of get a sense of you know oh this event is coming up or you know um oh they have a new you know um, person coming on board onto their, you know, um, onto some team of theirs or something like that. Even just those minor details can actually t uh, say a lot. And uh, so it, it actually really makes, uh, makes it helpful to have a follow-up where you can say, oh, it's, you know, call them up or email them and say, oh, you know, it's so interesting. I just saw on Twitter that, you know, you got a new board member, you know, I'd love to talk to you about that or, oh, you know, that event or something like that. Um, so it, it makes for a good sort of like um, uh, conversation opener. Um, if it doesn't seem creepy, I don't know. <laughs> to me, it's not. <laughs> um, but in any case, that's, that's really what my, uh, my, my uh, two cents. So. Awesome. Thank, thank you for sharing, Emma. That's great. Sure. Hi, Susan Wood with Wilson Wood Foundation in Nokomis, Florida. And I've been listening to all the comments and I think they're very good. Um, I can tell some of the participants have been in, in the business a very long time, like myself. And um, one thing that um, I've done to, um, to really get some resource information about uh, the organizations is to actually utilize the community foundations in our area because I've been in the business a very long time and I know that I can always pick up the phone and call them um, and see what their comments, how they play well in the area uh, the organization may be asking for a grant, how they play well in the area with other organizations. 
Um, I can also, I do have confidants in the, uh, in the area too, that uh, other fundees that we work with, I, that I've worked with for a long time, that I can use them. And often I just, you know, call the organization itself and ask, um, you know, I believe in communication, direct communication. So uh, you can find out a lot by just listening to other people or talking with other people. That's great. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and move on now to the third one. Um, and how does this due diligence process, so you're, you're taking a look at all this data, you're talking to your grantees, they're submitting supporting documentation, you're using it. I'm curious to know how does this process influence your decision on which organizations, organizations receive what type of funding? So are there times that you, normal, that you would take a calculated risk, whereas normally it would rule out maybe their opportunity for funding, um, but there's something that, about their mission or the fact that they're a startup and maybe don't have a lot of uh, income yet? Um, what are, what's that process sort of look like for your foundation? Um, kind of as a subcategory there, would you necessarily think about putting conditions on that grant and actually changing your grant agreement uh, in order to sort of meet those benchmarks? Um, I'm also curious, because somebody had mentioned it uh, a little earlier, that um, do you share the information that you're collecting and sort of the analysis that you're doing just sort of within your own staff and your program officers, maybe your boss, uh, or do you actually share that to the committee and the boards who are making the decisions? I'm just curious to know uh, what you choose to do. And then the last thing just to think about is what are the future implications of due diligence? So I think, again, somebody mentioned this of, you know, year after year. So if you see something that might be a flag or something that's um, questionable or of a concern, um, what's the sort of um, process you use to sort of track that year over year to make sure that, um, that that thing is either being worked on or addressed? So these are sort of some of the prompting questions I sort of want you guys to think about, um, but feel free to, to jump in with uh, any of those hands. We do share the information that we, um, in our due diligence with the board um, through the wonderful Foundant um, platform. So we go in, um, Jody goes in first and makes the calculations for the program expense ratio, fundraising expense ratio, MG&A expense ratio. Then I go behind her and make the comments regarding salaries, regarding any unusual notes um, that I found in the financial statements and the follow-up um, that we've gotten from the organization with that. We put that right in the foundant application for the tr other trustees to review. Um, and if it's a um, something that we think is um, a particular note um, that needs to be discussed at the meeting. We'll bring that up at the meeting and put it on the agenda. Um, one thing that we did have is we did have an organization. Um, my background is accounting, so it was, um, as far as I was concerned, it was a going concern issue um, financially. And we donated, continued to donate to them for years. Um, and we just followed it and they just could never really turn it around. Um, and so we discussed, we discussed it from a, um, liability standpoint. It was a school that we just felt like it was not, uh, it got to a point we didn't feel like we could fund it anymore. Um, the other thing that we do do is we try to, um, keep under 10% of 
um, our, do our donations under the 10% limit of uh, charities operating expenses. But um, in the exceptions, we will sometimes, if it's a new organization or they have specific expenses one year, we might do, uh, break that rule and go over that um, just based on the circumstances. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. Just a very simple answer on sharing um, our results is that um, we actually created a due diligence evaluation form in Foundant, um, which is visible to um, the, uh, the other evaluators and program managers who are using Foundant to review um, their grant decisions. And so, um, you know, we, we put in a very simple scoring system, and, but the entire um, uh, evaluation is visible to our coworkers. So that's just how we share it. Interesting. Thank you for sharing. I, um, I know somebody I talked to recently who was thinking about doing just that. So thank you for sharing that. That's great. So we absolutely, our due diligence process um, very much influences the decisions that are made on the organizations when it comes to funding. We will have, we, we do have a financial analysis that we just started in this, in this past year that really does set us up. We're in a, a large grant cycle right now, for example, that we have a new organization. There's actually two in which we have had the discussion that this is a calculated risk we are willing to make to try and get them off the ground because we feel so strongly about their program. Um, we do visit with all of these organizations, whether it's face-to-face -face or in you know, a Zoom or FaceTime or a phone call, we visit with all of them once we've received their application. And that's part of where it becomes a little easier sometimes to say, we've done the due diligence, we know there are risks, but we're willing to take that risk you know, for this one year and, and, and let's see how they go. Um, there are absolutely times in this process where we have run across things where we believe in the organization, our board would like to fund the organization, but that we do set very specific conditions. In some cases, it's going to be a grant that we're going to pay out over multiple payments, and you don't get that second installment until you have met a particular condition when we have concerns whether or not you're going to be able to do the work that you said you were going to do. Um, we do share our in-house analyses, um, preliminary analyses and the financial analyses with our board and with all of our staff. We try to complete that financial analysis prior to our grant visit where we're visiting with them so that we know what questions and that everyone who is participating in that visit has an idea what questions we might want to ask to really get down to the bottom of, of the concerns that we may have. Um, so we are looking to expand this. We are interested in, and definitely have taken some great notes on what some of you all are doing for due diligence because this is an area we would like to expand um, to make sure that we really are doing the best evaluation of the applicants. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. We do share the information that we collect doing, during the due diligence with our trustees. Um, I work for the Community Foundation, but my job specifically, I work with um, 10 private foundations. So we create a summary of the application, which I had mentioned earlier. 
we do an org assessment, program assessment, and financial assessment. And we do include in there, or if there are any red flags at an organization. Um, we've had times in the past where um, there have been some concerns financially or otherwise with staff turnover and boards where some things were happening that shouldn't have been. And in some cases, um, if the trustees have a strong relationship with that organization and have funded them a lot in the past, they're okay with taking that risk. Um, there's some that we've seen who um, have operated um, over budget for several years. And again, sometimes it's happened where they've gone ahead and awarded a grant and in other cases, they'll wait and say, let's see how they do and come back in a year or two and we'll relook at them. Um, and we'll also do contingency grants. Um, one in particular, there's a playground that they wanted to fund, but know that they're gonna have a hard time trying to raise all the dollars needed. So they put a contingency on it when they raise the next amount of number of dollars, um, then let us know and we'll um, give you the money that we said we would do. So um, we do have both ends of the spectrum on that for sharing that stuff, but where it's very open and trustees want to hear all of that and the nonprofits, we have good relationships with them. So most of them that we work with are comfortable sharing the truth with us because we have those strong partnerships. I'm with the Coquel Tribal Community Fund. One thing that I do is um, grant reports are kind of one of the only factors I would say that kind of are helpful to weed out applications. So if a grantee gets a grant the previous year and fails to submit their grant report, then it's supposed to be a kind of deal breaker for that grant cycle that follows. And so I create a spreadsheet of um, grantees that have not submitted that report and then I bring that to the board meeting where we decide who gets funded that year and let the board know hey this person has not submitted the last one or two years of grant reports um, just so you know and it's up to them to kind of make that decision though still um, on if they are going to take another chance or like okay they really need to get their stuff together before we decide to give them another grant and they can decide that in the meeting. Good, great example. I have um, a client who's also looking into starting to do that, sort of flagging the organizations who seem to be a little bit more tardy with their grant reports and things like that as a way of you know, understanding if they're gonna get a post-grant reform back from them. So thank you for sharing that. I'm Alden, I'm, I'm Director of Programs at the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation. We're based in Oakland. Um, I know that traditionally that there has been this rule uh, where a grant um, a grant maker will say to a grantee, "Well, you know, we don't want you, we want you to use ninety percent of your of our grant for a program that you're doing and that we want to support, and but we, we and we don't want to give have you use more than ten percent of that grant for operations, um, so that the work." that people get excited about gets done. However, um, things are, are changing. Um, there was, I read an article recently in which some 
uh, CEOs of the Ford Foundation, uh, I think MacArthur, I'm trying to remember ones that were involved in this, wrote about um, changing this rule. And, and we actually, at the, at the Logan Foundation here, are, are doing that as well. What we're recognizing is sometimes if you focus all of your program money or 90% of it toward, uh, toward a program, um, you can stretch a, a nonprofit thin. In other words, they're trying to get the work done, but they don't have money for salaries. They don't have money for to keep the lights on. They don't have money for just the basic operations because they of the 10% rule. And so there's a lot more emphasis, uh, a growing emphasis, I should say, on, on grant makers allowing um, the grantees to use a larger percentage. Sometimes we even have make grants that are specifically 100% capacity building or organizational um, funding so that they maybe hire the, a development director or maybe they, you know, they use it for general operating support in order to shore up the organization because if you can't obviously keep the lights on and keep people paid well and that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter how much program money you've got to work with because it'll just collapse. So it's a good foundation um, to, to provide general operating support, to provide um, more than 10% in your grant making uh, to a grantee. Great, thank you for that perspective, that's great. Hi, um, I was the one that originally um, said of the 10% rule, and I don't think I made myself clear. We try not to fund more than 10% of a nonprofit's budget for the year is what I was talking, referring to with that 10%. And I think we actually got that figure from a founded conference, um, that that was kind of a good rule of thumb, that um, we didn't want any nonprofit really to rely too much on us um, for their funding. We wanted them to have a broader base. And we have made exceptions to that rule. Um, and some, some nonprofits that we have smaller nonprofits that we've been a larger part of for a long time, we've kept on. But um, it, I think w in the situation we got where we had to pull funding from a nonprofit, um, it, was, it was a good thing that we weren't more than 10%. I see. And just to clarify then, Karen, you're saying that like yeah. if a nonprofit has a $100,000 uh, operating budget, but they're requesting more than $10,000, that's more than 10%. And that could be a big, you know, let's say they're requesting 50,000. Well, that, they've just, you know, that's a, that's a really big increase to go from uh, 100,000 to 150,000 in just a year. So that's sort of more what you're saying. Exactly. We just, in fact, we're in our grant cycle and we had a nonprofit ask for pretty much 50% of a new program from us. And we're like, okay, wait, let's back up here. So we, we've reached out to them for some additional information. Got it. Wonderful. Thank you for clarifying. Um, that 10% discussion, just a quick follow-up, because I understood what Karen was talking about. I really do believe that's a foundation-by-foundation foundation decision. The one, for, for the new person, if you're really new to this, the one thing that we pay very close attention to is the IRS's one-third rule. So we will have organizations, um, new organizations in particular, who will come in requesting 50% of their operating budget because we do allow operating budget requests and we grant operating budget so that they can decide what percent goes to programs and what percent truly goes to salaries and administrative costs. Um, but, but we really work 
especially with our new applicants and new organizations to understand the IRS rules that we will not consider any grants in which they are approaching that one third um, of their funding from a single organization. And so we, that's, the, that's the thing we take a look at. We actually document as part of our due diligence what percent of their request, if it's a project request, what percent of the project are they asking us for? And we document what percent of what they're asking us for is, or what's the percent of their operating budget as well. So that our board gets to see those percentages at both levels um, as part of their decision making. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Appreciate that. Um, unless there's any other questions, uh, I think um, we're over time here a little bit, but um, this is a really um, awesome uh, use of sharing. So thank you, everybody who participated. We really, really appreciate that. And um, like we mentioned, the Foundation World such a rich sharing environment for peer learning. So we really appreciate your participation. Um, thanks again for attending, and we hope to see you on more Coffee Talks in the future. So that was our conversation. We're going to keep bringing you conversations like this following the coffee talks that we host online. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can look for announcements on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn by following Foundant Technologies. And we want to hear from you. Unlike a lot of podcasts out there, you can participate yourself by registering for one of our coffee talk webinars. You can register for a webinar or access additional resources by clicking on the links in the episode notes. So from everyone at Founded Technologies, thanks for listening. We hope you found it helpful, and we can't wait to connect with you again on our next Coffee Talk.